Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. Well, hey, thank you for joining us today for the podcast. Yeah, thank you. We're excited to be here. Yeah, so why don't we start by having you guys introduce yourselves. Sure. Well, my name is Elliot Smith. I am here in Austin, Texas, and my business partner. I'm Sarah Axe, also in Austin, Texas. And we, we're working with, a, we started a project called Kitchen Sink Strategies, S-Y-N-C, um, trying to make some changes in, in the central Texas food system, but look to ways that we can do that uh, beyond and, and across the country in, in various ways. But we have a funky mix of uh, background from public health and policy and food and education, education mm-hmm. lots of stuff. So we're, we're kind of very much intended bringing the kitchen sink to the work, and we're excited to, to, to get cracking. Yeah, so I love the pun. So you know, I, I Tara's way is one is two puns actually. Um, Tara, oh, yeah. Tara and Earth and way and way. Um, so the sink yeah. thing is really cool. Yeah. So I met you, Elliot, um, you, when you and I were Wallace Fellows last year for economic development. Yeah. yeah. And and at the time, you hadn't started Kitchen Sink yet, and you were on the part, I think it was part of Travis County, right? County government? Yeah. 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 And what were you doing then, just to bring the audience up to speed? Yeah, what I was doing then is, is um, I was working actually as a planner in the Economic Development Office, which was housed within the county government. Um, the charge of that department was, as you can imagine, to sort of support and sustain the Travis County economy in various ways. Um, for years before that, I, I had moved to Austin from Seattle, uh, and I was in Boulder, Colorado before that, and Boston before that, and all throughout those places, food had always been something that I had been looking at. So naturally, I showed up in the economic development office and started talking about food and farming. Mm. And that was a new content, uh, a new bucket of work for for the economic developers in that um, office. And just also kind of at the county level uh, for, yeah, for for folks here in Central Texas, just not uh, without going off a lot of details, it was a new concept that the food economy was something for Travis County to actively, proactively protect. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I started working on some projects there and put together something I called the Food and Farming Initiative, which was uh, and that's sort of Travis County's first attempt to take a wholesale look at the system, the food system here, um, understand what role the county could play in supporting it, uh, and a lot of that, as a planner, wound up being focused on the land itself. Um, Travis, Travis County is incredibly rapidly urbanizing. Often, as you and I'm sure the listeners know, is one of the fastest growing cities in the country. It keeps somehow getting to be the quote best place to live. You know, it has all these things that are attracting people at a, at a very high rate. So the land development pressures are unbelievably high. Mm, um, yeah which means the green space that's always been around Austin and in Travis counties is kind of disappearing. So part of the Food and Farming Initiative was getting the county to care about it and say, hey, this is a, actually a really important asset to our economy. we gotta, we got to protect farms and farmers because everybody who's moving here and everybody who already lives here is going to want to eat. And mm-hmm. it's getting really, for lots of reasons, it's important to have a local food economy that's thriving. So. What is yeah, so that was kind of the work I was Yeah, that was what you were doing. And what I found so interesting about that was that from the for the rest of the world, we kind of look at at Austin, Texas as kind of the gold standard. Like you guys know what you're doing when it comes to economic development and having a cool city and doing all kinds of progressive things. And then I learned from you that there this whole food and farm economy thing was just something that 
haven't even thought about, which just blew my mind because here we are in Wisconsin yeah. in a place like Madison, which is it has a decent enough reputation, but certainly nothing like like Austin. And we actually do spend time thinking and have for quite a long time about land use and preserving farming around yeah. around Madison, right? So it, it was just really interesting to me. But then part of it is is Texas and government in Texas too, right? Yeah. <laughs> Bingo. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's I mean, there's it's it's a it's a calcified system in a lot of ways. You know, things are there are folks who really want to go back to different the old ways of doing things mm. down here. <laughs> well, and I don't know if it's always. It's just not. So, what does your legislature meet every year, or not? Yeah. I think it's every every other year. Every other year. It is every other months. year. Yeah, right. I it was. Oh, I was just. I was recently in Montana, and they their their legislature was in session, and everybody was like, "No, no, no! You don't understand. They only they only are in session once every other year, and and I don't think for six. It's even six months. I don't know, but mm. yeah. I mean, so there's just not. Yeah. Yeah, there's not a lot of cultural support for the idea of government being involved in anything. Yeah, I mean that's that's for sure hurdle. And and both Sarah and I, I while I was working at the county, Sarah, tell your experience. She, she was working with the city, and you know, in a state like Texas, where local control isn't something that the state legislature really likes, mm-hmm. you know, they don't want to right. give cities. They don't want the, the chance to. It's so funny because they yeah. don't want to meet, but they don't want to give people local control either. <laughs> exactly. That's it. That's the move. So, yeah, it's, it's, we, we, um, it, oddly, I think one of the landscapes that is, with respect to food anyways, quite, uh, well, it's just robust, I guess, here is sort of the traditional food access work here in Austin. There's a lot of nonprofit and social sector stuff trying to solve the problem of food access mm-hmm. and not, not a lot of folks turning their head, looking, looking up and thinking, wait a minute, why are we even having this conversation in the first place? Mm-hmm. What are the systems that have determined these things? I mean, Sarah's been working a lot. We've both done a lot of work on, on that side of the equation and realized, Hey, this is like, we're, what we're doing is plugging a leaking hose and somebody needs to turn the water off, mm-hmm. you know? We gotta, we gotta figure this out. Mm-hmm. So that, so where does that thinking lead you? Like, what do you think the the faucet is that needs to be turned off? Well, I think that Elliot and I came together after many, many weeks and months of just talking about all these issues, our experiences at the county, the city, and elsewhere, and how we saw our roles, what we felt was might be missing from the work that we were doing, and. Ultimately, that's how we decided to move forward with kitchen sink strategies um, and really find a way to bring other people, other departments, other sectors, other businesses, other leaders into the conversation that weren't traditionally in those conversations, weren't in the meetings, and in a lot of cases didn't or don't maybe even understand or think there's a role for them in the food system. Mm -hmm. And so often having these, you know, we're working on these different food access initiatives, but realizing that where it's not just a matter of where people live and what retail options they have access to, but the roof over their head makes a difference in terms of what food they can get. Do they have electricity in their homes? Do they have ownership in where they're living? Are they, you know, in Texas, we don't have any kind of rent control. And so people can be renting for a long time and it might be affordable, but very quickly, as, as fast as often is changing, people are being pushed further and further out into areas where there's less and less, mm-hmm. not just food resources, but every resource, mm-hmm. medical care, transportation, um, everything. Mm-hmm. And so what we're trying to do through our work is have more of those intentional conversations. So bring, you know, almost kind of running around saying, hey, listen, you know, listen to us. Food food matters too. Um, mm-hmm. And what you're doing has an influence on our food system. And 
you know, it can be, you can make a small change, you can make a big change, but just being really intentional about the way you're thinking about the food system can have a really um, long-term impact and ultimately, hopefully, make a more sustainable change in the way that people are eating food and growing food and selling food and all of the different components to it. Mm-hmm. So when you say um, talking to people and th- trying to get them to think a bit differently, who who are those people that you're talking to? That is something that is, as we start and launch this, realizing there's there's a lot of people on that list. Mm-hmm. Um, but it both, I mean, some of the, the sectors, if you will, our focus is to talk with public sector um, leaders, um, private sector businesses, and philanthropies mm-hmm. to help to help them understand because of their size and the potential that they have, usually with their resources, be they money or some or, or policy or legislation, whatever, uh, those are the groups that we think have really good chances to make high impact uh, changes to the system here. Um, you know, we, we're one of our, we work with a school district here and, and they, <clears throat> the school district buys um, more than, $12 million of food every year. Mm-hmm. And just by virtue of them purchasing that food, they have pretty big influence over what the regional food economy provides. Mm-hmm. So if we can work with that district and how, and help better choices be easier choices for procurement, mm-hmm. that's one way that kitchen thinking kind of align. You know, we think of ourselves as, as you know, value chain coordination is a term that's quite common we're, we're trying to, to be values chain coordinators. <laughs> interesting. What's interesting to me, uh, you know, I think you and I have talked about this, that thing, the school district thing is a really good example because way back when, when I ran the cheese company that made 20 million pounds of cheese a year, we could not make cheese cheap enough and we were completely automated and made a lot of cheese. We couldn't make mm-hmm. it cheap enough for a school district to buy it. Like it was the, mm-hmm. and you know, in terms of of all the potential markets, institutional markets are the worst. Period, and then schools are pretty much the bottom of the worst because they, you know, what is it? I don't know. In Texas, a dollar thirty seven or something for a school lunch. Something so, like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So, so like, how how do you wade into that with a school district? You know what I'm saying, or with the, or policymakers or something? Because it it's, it, you know, people thought here in Wisconsin it was like I they had me speak at one of these events and I was like, are you sure you want me to speak at this event because I'm going to tell get up in front of everybody because they were very excited because they would do a conference and. And the school district procurement people would be there and the farmers would be there. And they were like, well, this is enough. They're going to, that'll make this work. And then I got up there and said, how many of you have actually, over the last three years of coming to this, managed to make something work? And no hands went up. And, and yeah. the reason is the, the, the price doesn't work. Um, so, yeah. like, how do you guys wade into something like that? Yeah, it's a great question. We're we're jumping in. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I say, not, um, not, not waiting, waiting jumping. Just yeah, just okay. going for it. Yep. Yeah, head first. Um, and, <laughs> not, let's not waste any time. Um, and I think you know we've only just gotten started on this, and that that question has come up quite a bit because there's a lot. I think we know a lot more about the foods that large institutions ought to be purchasing or if they did purchase would be healthier for kids, would be better for the environment, would be better for, you know, growers and, and all, um, all people on the supply chain in terms of, um, the production, but the trade-offs we have to consider so that schools can afford those things, but also, you know, acknowledge that schools are restricted by national um, nutrition requirements. They're restricted by, they receive funds that have to go towards um, certain suppliers. And there's all these different trade-offs that we're just now trying to, you know, sift apart and figure out where can we buy more of certain things and less of other things. And then within that, what are all the different 
um, processes and systems in place within the school system that will allow a lot of those trade-offs to happen, such as their menu design and maybe the, the cafeteria design itself, how many lines do the kids go through to mm. get food, and how many options are we giving to kids, and can we change those things? And there, there are so many different components that right now what we're, we're doing to start is figure out what at least identify what are all those different pieces that if a change was made, you know, here or there within each one, eventually can we figure out what this, you know, the solution to this puzzle and figure out how to really optimize the the purchases that the school district and any other institution is making. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, or we don't think it's just a matter of, you know, buy all organic or buy all this. It's really just about optimizing the money that they have, the system that the processes that they're working within in their own institution. And then ultimately, are the kids going to eat the food that we're selling them to buy? Um, and so, so I have really a thinking again. Yeah. Yeah, I have a story about that, um, that I work with a company here who is an Indian couple who um, imports um, spices and they have these sort of, it's not quite a meal kit idea, um, but sort of. Um, they bring spices that we don't grow in the United States from India and they're all organic and they're amazingly aromatic and fun, like, like, you, it makes you realize just how old all the spices are that you buy any other way, mm-hmm. right? Um, and they've created um, these kits to help school districts make Indian food. And they're mm-hmm. in Wisconsin, okay, which is not the land of the most adventurous eaters. And um, what they they took <laughs> these things to the school districts and they have, you know, this food has things like, you know, curcumin in it and stuff, right? And and mm-hmm. low salt and really good and designed for vegetables, right? So they took it to the school districts across Wisconsin and the 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 um the kitchen managers actually love the idea um because, you know, even buying spices is does not cost that much money right compared to a big thing and then and then they the first thing they do is a test with the kids to see if the kids will eat it the kids love it you they usually they usually score incredibly high when they trial the food with the kids and they this is and they've started getting um sales all across wisconsin even rural school districts And big school districts like the Twin Cities, right, Minneapolis. Yeah. So what's what's been really interesting to me about that is that that is a solution that has they've made it like super easy for school districts right. who have a central kitchen or, or an individual kitchen. Um, you know, like open packet A at this point and packet B at this point and do right. X with the potatoes, right? And and yeah. actually the world is is accepting this really well, which is super inspiring yeah. to me because we spend most of our time thinking about all the things that don't work with this, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's we, we're, we have, there's loads of examples of, of similar stuff that, you know, if it, if it's just the discussion right now, maybe it hasn't happened yet. That's a, that's a common theme. And there, are, I think kitchen sinks work, our, our work is to just demystify it. You know, we, mm-hmm. we often talk about ourselves as puzzle solvers, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, if you think about, I studied linguistics when I was younger and, and linguistics is basically the study of what the puzzle of language is. And <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you just learn how to put the pieces together. It's a very similar process when you're talking about something. I, I'm actually not Sometimes I don't believe that the food system is even a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a lot of different systems that, that interconnect. And we have to become sort of um, fluid, if not fluent, in the languages of each of those systems. Because, yeah, procurement processes are super complicated. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to have everything that we propose be really easy. <laughs> and we're, you know, right. we're fortunate here in Austin that leadership uh, in the various sectors, I think understand the base, you know, why this stuff really matters. Mm-hmm. We don't have to convince people that it's important to do these things. 
We just have to help them realize that they can do it. Yeah, um, and I think helping them solve the economics of it, you know, that in, mm-hmm. in the, 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 this client I have is a great example because it, it, it was a way to create some incredibly healthy food with some of the ingredients right. they already had, right? They already had potatoes. So, um, so it's not like they had to completely re-change everything about everything. And um, yeah. I, I think that, and it's not buying incredibly expensive ingredients. So, I mean, things, things like that um, can be super, super helpful. And, and we have this idea, and I know that school districts have limited, a lot of the schools have limited food prepar- preparation capacity mm-hmm. left, you know. But, but even that is mm-hmm. something that can be overcome to a certain degree. So, yeah. yeah. So we've talked about this too, because I'm such a business person that I, my my take of on this whole the whole the whole idea of a food system, it's not some abstract thing to me. It's made up of a bunch of businesses, and which is why yeah. it. It makes me crazy that people can graduate with undergrad degrees or graduate degrees in food systems and never have to take a business class, not even mm, one. Yeah. It's like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a knock on, on the, the work. I think that's a realization that Sarah and I had when we launched this was we kept going to food policy council meetings and working group meetings on whatever. And even if they're talking about business interventions at their core, like a food hub, for example, Mm -hmm. we would go to these meetings and every time somebody would say, man, if only there were private sector people here or where's the transportation system in this discussion. Mm -hmm. And then, then the meeting would adjourn and we'd go to the next meeting and those people wouldn't be there. And then somebody would say the same thing. Well, that and people even in, that are, quote, working in the food system could be in the same room having a conversation about something and, you know, the people representing the farmers might say, well, no, 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 that's not for me. I'm not connected to that or that doesn't align with my mission. You know, when you're talking, having people talking, representing farmers and others representing, you know, talking about food security issues and um, food access, a lot of times those to organizations or those two missions don't align. So it's even the, the people that are spending every single second of their working and probably non-working time thinking about the food system aren't even aligned in terms of how they connect to each other. So mm-hmm. it's the connections within and then the connections without. I think that it's all, um, everyone needs a little bit more time devoted to working together and, and understanding how their work is connected and relate to the larger, for lack of better terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that, that, El, that Elliot, I saw you do um, was I'm trying to, you, you must have a name for this, but the visualization that you do of a food system. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I need to come up with a cool name for it, but right. <laughs> I'm just I, calling them system process, like a process map, you know, mm-hmm. systems map. Um, that that is like that. That is one of the. I mean, I guess one of the products that Kitchen Sink has is developing is is this is a hard thing. This is a complicated discussion, and when you really get into the weeds, just like with anything. It's not as simple as just like, oh, yeah, for you, Tara, example, like keep the whey aside and then like put it in a package and then sell it. You right. That. Like, no, it's unbelievable. You need, a, you need a huge operation. You need a plant built. You need all these things. Yeah. And unless you have a lot of time and unless you have a lot of personal relationships, it's actually really complicated to explain this stuff to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the food system, so to speak, is, is complicated for the people who spend their whole lives looking at it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so one sort of shortcut we've, we found is this, just putting it on a map, kind of showing, if you can imagine uh, a map with a bunch of circles, like little nodes that are all connected in these specific ways. That's one frame 
that's one way of us representing if each little node is one individual process that has some sort of chain reaction or is connected in other ways to other processes that in the aggregate create the food system. It's a way to situate people visually where they fall in the process. Mm-hmm. So, it's, you like, know. it's like stargazing. It's like um, drawing the constellations and yeah. then figuring out which constellations go together to orient yourself Mm-hmm. to where you are in the, in the world. Right, and to find your place in the overall scheme of things and figure out who who you should be talking to that you're not talking to. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's, and, and I think that's the thing we're finding a lot, a lot of interest and traction with is those maps are probably more helpful to show you what you're not doing right. or who you don't know. Right. A lot of this, the maps themselves look a lot like social network analyses, that that's a term that's familiar to folks. Um, where you really just kind of map who's who and how they're connected. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we're we doing that as well with clients because it's also very helpful for them to see who they don't know and who they don't have relationships with. Mm-hmm. I, I can't possibly know the ins and outs of the CDFIs here in Central Texas, and, and I'm convinced I don't actually need to. Mm-hmm. I just need to be able to understand them enough to speak their language and to help them see, from my perspective and in our work, where they fit into the bigger discussion, mm-hmm. um, and they bring their own tools. Like they have their, they'll know their products better than I will, and thank God. <laughs> right. So they can bring the best solution to whatever conversation we're having. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. so just thinking about applying all this to the <laughs> Austin area, um, I my son got married in Austin in April, and we yeah. were we were trying. He, so he was. His the wedding venue was right in urban metro Austin, right, and mm-hmm. and it was Easter weekend, which meant that everything was like hotels and Airbnb and Verbo and everything was like completely booked, and the things that were left were extraordinarily expensive. So, yeah. uh, so I ended up renting a car and I stayed in the burbs because I was like, I'm not spending yeah. 500 bucks a night. Forget it. Um, and, and I, mm. um, so because I stay in the burbs, I'm like driving out of the, out of Austin and I'm looking around and there, as you said, there was like, there's, there's no green space, right? It doesn't look like, and there's any, um, any effort to preserve green space around Austin, you know, it's just kind of sprawling out. Is that right? Oh man. If, if, <laughs> if we said yes, we'd just create enemies here. There there are efforts going, you know, there, mm-hmm. there are lots of people who want to do it and right. there's lots of folks trying really, really earnestly, but yeah, I mean, development is king right now. Mm-hmm. And well, in our whole land code yeah. in Austin went, hasn't been rewritten. So for years and decades, um, the land code, and I can't give you an exact date, but has just been kind of patched up mm-hmm. year after year. And a year or two or so ago, the city went through this whole code rewrite. And it got so much backlash from the community mm. um, on all different sides. And just went on and on and on and on and right up until re-election for some council members and the mayor and the entire code rewrite was thrown out. Mm. And we'll now, you know, at some point start again um, and from a different perspective, but some of the goals within that code rewrite are to address a lot of these issues. So how do we preserve open space, but also accommodate for this rapidly growing population um, within Austin and then just a little bit outside of Austin and how do you, you know, promote and, and support new business, but also preserve the character of neighborhoods and create mm-hmm. transit corridors. And so how do you create a land code that will do every possible thing that will meet everyone's needs? Right. That's where Austin is right now and, and preserving that green space and, and having that is, is 
isn't so much central to the plan, but the way things are evolving and until that happens, development can happen under the old code in a way that does slowly take away more and more open space. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, you know, it's, I don't know. (laughs) It's It's there. It's messy. You know, part of what, what's great about Austin is all of the the nature and the activity that you can do. um, But it's slowly being, Taken away. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and just to speak to the farming perspective, you know, there there are there are no longer any dairies in Travis County, and Travis County is losing twelve acres of eleven acres of farmland a day mm. because of you know the, the land code is is only applicable to city limits naturally. Oh, so right. As and a couple last legislative session, the state passed a bill that said no cities can annex land without the approval of the majority of inhabitants in the place that is to be annexed. Mm-hmm. So de facto, nobody's annexing any more land, right. which means the city limit is kind of set where it is. And because counties don't have land use authority in the state mm. of Texas, it's a heyday for developers. Right. And that is naturally where farmland is. It's out in the county. It's in right. the, the rural area. So historically, unreal, rich, fertile, black land, prairie soil is getting bought up in a 100-acre plot or, you know, whatever, 1,000-acre development subdivided 100 times over. And the truth is that just makes more money right. than to the county and property tax and all the other things that, you know, the county's got to answer mm-hmm. um, to, all, to, to its constituents as well. But here's the icing on the cake this year. I don't actually know where it wound up. I think the state legislature in, instituted revenue caps for cities and counties in the state of Texas saying you can't raise your property taxes, taxes right. more than three and a half. Yeah. Mm-hmm. More than three and a half percent. And previously the, the cap had been 8% mm-hmm. uh, per year, you know, so right. imagine the pressures that the public infrastructure now has to provide a lot more support and infrastructure with a lot less revenue. Like right. what would you do in that situation? Right. Right. Um, right. So part of our challenge has been in framing the food system work here is to tell that story about the value. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, you can think about Travis County in 2050 and show us the plan for a regional transit system that looks really great, but people are still going to eat in 2050. And mm-hmm. if you want to have local food as an option, full stop, then, like, this is a thing that you absolutely have to protect to mm. say nothing of the environmental benefit. Right. Um, like, just even in the numbers game, people people are realizing that, I feel like. It's a problem that we should have been talking, like, in Wisconsin. We should have been talking about this 40 years ago, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and um, it is it is funny because we talked about it a lot more 30 years ago. Like, uh, it's interesting, yeah. right? It's um, now... Uh, you know, so some of the there are a couple of pla- well, the one in particular, um, uh, a township just south of Madison had a farm passed a farmland preservation act and had a farmland fund where they that would buy the development rights, and yeah. and that has created this area that. Um, that is going to be really tough to develop, and it's now you know the city has put has expanded or the 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 peripheral communities and have expanded to the point where this thing is really important. If it hadn't been there, it would have mm. all been eaten up. But so we don't yeah. we don't talk. We it would be you know the political climate even here has shifted to the place where I think. Yeah. It would have been harder to do that now, and and from what people tell me, the that whole, the, the creating the fund that buys the development rights, um, that the development rates get start getting so expensive that you can't do the yeah. fund. So it's like that whole instrument has to get developed now, probably for places that are already pretty far away from Austin. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, because you need yeah. to go to places for where sure. where there isn't development pressure now in order for the economics of the fund to work. Yeah, yeah it's, and, and that's those are the places with even less infrastructure. You know, right, right. It, what's interesting yeah. to me about this too is um, when I come come to Austin, 
which is such a progressive city, and you have such an amazing food culture, right? It's not that frequent to find a restaurant that even talks about locally sourcing food, in my experience. And now I might be wrong, because I obviously haven't been to every restaurant, but... (laughs) Yeah. I think it's still... I mean, you share the same perspective that I think most people do when they think of Austin or come to Austin, because what you don't see, not you. Yeah, <laughs> no, I get it. I, yeah, what you don't see is is the the kind of poverty and displacement and mm-hmm. all of the things that are not progressive about Austin because there is so much. Mm-hmm. Um, you see this really vibrant um, music culture and you know, people running and biking and everywhere and everyone's taking their dogs everywhere. And it's just a really healthy, active and um, just fun and young city. But Austin is the top most economically segregated cities of its size in the country. Mm -hmm. And so while there are so many progressive and wonderful things about the city, on the other side, there are a lot of things that aren't. And I think that you you do you will find many restaurants that celebrate the fair labor and local food and you know will advertise all the farms that they're sourcing from. But I find that those places are often the more much more higher end mm-hmm. restaurants, mm-hmm. and the local food is here feels more um, financially and. Um, geographically and accessible than in some other places that we visited. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just kind of the nature of our city where the more, the more you kind of come into the the core of the city, the the higher median income and more expensive housing you'll you'll find. Mm -hmm. And so we have this kind of flipped model um, that you don't see in other cities. So it exists and it's there, but it's not also in a lot of ways because it's not really part of the culture. It's still more, it's seen, I think, more as kind of a bonus or um, yeah. you know, a special feature. And again, yeah. it's just not, it's not gonna, you're not going to pop into, a, you know, a, a little corner, a corner store or a corner market and, and see all of that. It's, it's more isolated. Yeah. Because I, I, the reason that I brought that up is I think another part of what happened in Madison about the same, the farmland preservation thing 30 years ago or 20 years ago, that, that 10, that year, I'm not exactly sure what decade it was, but mm-hmm. it wasn't in the last 10 years. Um, we also had a, a chef here, Odessa Piper, who was friends with Alice Waters, who did a um, shape, our version of Chez Panisse here, which was L'Etoile. And the joke was always, you got to cash in the CD to go have dinner there. But it was, <laughs> she established in our community like 30 years ago, shopping for the rest, for fresh stuff at the farmer's market, which was, is around the Capitol and her restaurant looked out at the Capitol and then cooking with that, right? And then celebrating yeah. the chef. So all of that started with that restaurant 20, 30 years ago. And so fast forward, and so that started people thinking about farmland and you need the food and you need the farmers. And then, and then you know, fast forward, it's part of our culture. Like, I swear it's difficult to open a restaurant in Madison now of any persuasion if you don't have some locally sourced something going on in this restaurant. It's just expected yeah. You know, and I live outside yeah. of Madison. I I used I just moved, but I used to live in this little town called Stroden outside of Madison, and the and a restaurant opened up, farm to table, open source, very reasonable food, incredibly great mm. food, and people thought, oh, that'll never work here. And the place is packed. It's been packed since it opened. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's a cultural shift, right? That and they go together. The idea of farmland preservation and local food eating go together. Right. Yeah. We we, we are and there are there are we could rattle off maybe a dozen or so restaurants mm-hmm. that do feature locally produced 
butcher, you know, process whatever foods. Um, what what we think we see a lot of potential to shift the entire discussion and change the premise that that should be a privilege for folks. And, right. And really, make, like that's just not doesn't sit well with us. So working with the big dogs here, mm-hmm. the public sectors, the philanthropies, big private businesses and institutions. They get to leverage their weight, and we, we, we're trying to help them do that in a more intentional, purposeful way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Your example of the of the Indian spice um, company there with yep. the school lunches. Mm-hmm. We would love. It, it's great conceptually to say, "Yo, well, come on, why don't you just source all your spinach from you know one of the local farms here?" And there there are several local farms. They're limited in size. the The idea sounds great, and nobody's going to say no to it, but. The infrastructure that underlies moving things around Central Texas is also underdeveloped. So right. where's the aggregator going to be? Well, do right. they have a crosstalk that's big enough? Blah, 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 blah. All these right. things, you know, that you you start walking now. We're just like, we're connectors. We think of ourselves as in a region, in a place, and this is for the national context really similar, where a bunch of protons and neutrons are kind of doing this thing. We're an electron, mm-hmm. and we're just going in between and saying, "Oh yeah, cool. Your transportation sector, awesome. Like, what, what's the plan with mass transit from the east side of Travis County? How are you mm-hmm. going to get the people who are in those areas where we should be having very robust farmland protection conversation to the city where their jobs are going to be?" Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think the ideas are all there. Yeah. And what yeah. Ellie and I are trying to do is figure out how to make those actually happen what are the logistics and what are what are the barriers and um what are the opportunities and who can can we connect to who in order to make those Mm -hmm. ideas and those quote solutions actually come to fruition yeah and it's it's you know it's for a culture to shift you got to have a lot of interconnected parts you know pulling their weight in in their own way, right? But in they're interconnected, okay. right? And so trying to yeah. it's fascinating to me to think about trying to be intentional about creating recreating a culture around food and agriculture. Because in a way that's what we're talking about, right? That right. that's what gets people motivated to do things like green belts. I mean, you know yeah. right, like you, Portland is is such a you know, Portland's such a great example of that, right? Because they did the Greenbelt thing. You go to Portland, and one of the things that we did that apparently everybody does, because there are lots of private tour companies that do local food tours, right? I mean, it's so embedded in their culture that you go there as a as a quote-unquote tourist, and the first thing in front of you is look at our food scene, right? It, it's It's yeah. pretty incredible. Yeah, and it's funny you, you you being from Wisconsin have that un, have the expectation almost that Austin will lead with that. You know, everybody right. thinks of this as a foodie. Yeah, and and there's probably a lot of opportunity. Like we hope that there's room to build that economy up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like people need to see that it can happen. Food, right. food is this is this wonderful it's a universal right everybody is eating mm-hmm. but it cuts right through all of the political divides all the social divides a great example is the commissioner of agriculture in the state of texas is to be as neutral as i can be a very uh dynamic individual mm-hmm. he has particularly strong beliefs it feels like on a lot of very ideologically divisive topics, mm-hmm. a lot of which have nothing to do with agriculture. So right. But the notion of supporting the Texas food economy is a given. Mm-hmm. And I think for him and, and, and his staff and everybody there, we think, like, we're realizing we don't need people to see the world the way we do. We don't right. have to get everybody onto our team and convince them that our version of the food economy is the way. We just got to find where people are, and then we can say, oh, cool, your, your charge is to support the Texas food economy. We love that, knowing mm-hmm. that we share so little else politically or otherwise in that worldview. Like, that's not what this is about. This is about identifying and operationalizing ways to get more good food to more people. Right. I was just going to add that I think that's what – Ellie and I are so excited 
to be able to do with this new work is that we're, because we're not tied to any one, um, you know, specific piece of the food system or any system for that matter. We're not tied to any organization or funder or, you know, we're kind of stewards of our own business destiny. Um, we're able to remain fluid and figure out and look from, I think, just one, one step back and say, how are these pieces connected and who can we bring in and and how can we frame this solution or this challenge in a way that will get, you know, six or seven different entities to listen rather than just one or two? Right. Because we're not tied tied down in, in one way, we're able to step back and look more holistically and, and try and bring people together in a way that um, we don't think is happening on a large scale mm-hmm. and, a lot, and definitely not in Austin and we don't think in a lot of other places. Yeah, no, getting, I think in our, the way our culture is right now, we need to create, which is sad that it's not happening organically. So we have to create um, opportunities for um, dialogue across ideologies, if that makes sense. And a lot, and you're mm-hmm. absolutely right that this comes out around food. So I did this boot camp for a town that that you heard me talk about, Elliot, with the Wallace fellows. But it, 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 we had conventional farmers there who farm, you know, with chemicals, two thousand acres at a time. You know that those sorts of people were there. Plus, wacky organic focused. Um, entrepreneurial people in the nonprofit community and all kinds of people to try to think about what um, f- the what making food and agriculture a core component of their economic development for the next ten years. Like, what would that look like? And it was it was fascinating to me because we created a place for all of those voices to be heard. Um, and not screamed at each other, right? And um, the commonality around that was economic development. Like everybody cares about their community and wanted to, they want to see it get better, right? So in a way, economic development and the work that you do within economic development offers such an important opportunity to create structures and safe places for a wide range of people to talk to each other. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when you're so entrenched in your own, your own work, your own mission, it's, it's hard to find that common ground. Yeah. And there, I, most often is a common ground, mm-hmm. um, even if it's small. Um, so it's, and that's great that that's yeah. something that you're pulling together and, yeah, no, and I think that's why that's a real important, really, really important part of your the potential for your work too. I mean that. Yeah. So right now, right because I was telling you before we got started that it's been raining forever here in the Midwest, and here mm-hmm. we are in June. It was forty five degrees last night, so there there's a lot of corn and beans that have not been planted across the upper Midwest and um, corn futures are way up and all kinds of things going on. Um, and I, I just read something where, where somebody went to talk to farmers in who are experiencing this and specifically trying to get them to talk about climate change because climate change has become like a code word to people for an ideology, yeah. right? Um, and and what what they found, which fascinated me, was people were like, "Oh yeah, of course something that there's something going on with the climate. Of course there is. We know that there's variability. What we want to do is solve problems and deal with it. We don't want to talk about the ideology and don't call it climate change because right. it ju- it's just um, it's too incendiary." Um, but we all know that there's something going on. I mean, look at this. This has never happened to us as farmers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's there's loads. Um, it's a play up on that translation idea. We, um, yeah, I, I, funny little anecdote. I just bought a picture dictionary at a used bookstore here. Mm-hmm. You remember, have you ever seen a picture dictionary? Yeah, I remember having one when I was a kid. 
Yeah, it's just it's got little complicated pictures with lines drawn to every item in the dictionary with with the word, but it's in English, Spanish, French, and German. Mm. And there's 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 words in English that I have never heard hmm. uh, in this in this dictionary. And I think it you saying that makes me think that so often with these issues, unless we take the time to sit and think about what that person's language is or whatever their orientation to the issue is, mm-hmm. if you can't take a step to, to stand next to them and think, okay, what matters here? Right. And then speak to that. Then like, we just, we just dig a deeper hole. Right. Um, we, we don't have, and, and the truth is for whatever lens you're using, we don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. Like, we, we can't, we can't live, we can't financially afford this. We can't uh, morally afford this. Some would say, like we're really behind the ball when it comes to how our region or our nation or our planet is going to feed itself without destroying itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we're kind of taking the work smarter, not harder approach and just find those aligning, the sort of naturally occurring shared values, mm-hmm. like the commissioner of ag saying, yeah, I want Texas beef. We know that we need to eat less beef because beef takes a ton of water and there's no more fresh water coming from anywhere else. The mm-hmm. earth has all it's ever going to have. But what if we were to say, let's take one day where we don't serve meat um, at our cafeteria, for example, for a big business. Like Apple actually has a huge, they have the biggest restaurant in Austin, I think, technically, is the Apple offices. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. So an institution like that, somebody's with a big cafeteria, if they were to say, we're not going to eat as much beef, we're going to have a meatless mm-hmm. Monday. Mm-hmm. But we're also going to switch completely to purchasing Texas-grown grass-fed beef. Right. That should be a double, you know, a double win. So to right. Speak. Right. Um, Maybe a triple win. Gonna, yeah, it helps yeah, the yeah, cli- yeah, it helps the more. you know climate change. It helps it helps with local sourcing, economic development, helps with health. Right. Right. Yeah. Multi-dimensional. Can, like, the system isn't, mm-hmm. Yeah. The, and the, the, we we at the end of the day to just get totally philosophical like this is a capitalist political food economy yeah you know? so of course by and large food is made to make money not to feed folks and you that that might sound depressing to some folks but we see opportunity there like it's not a perfect system either mm-hmm. like there's ways to get the folks it, it really it is about money then let's shift where money goes. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, in a very concrete way, what it means for philanthropy and public sector to align to leverage the money that they have to make shifts. Mm-hmm. Like, we're cool with that. Again, we don't need somebody to see the world the way we do, mm-hmm. but together they can make some pretty serious changes. Um, well, I think also we're careful not to say things like we're trying to solve the food system. Yeah. Or, right perfect this issue we're trying to make things better and i really think and believe that's really the best that we can do and if, if more people if more institutions if more policymakers, more funders make those investments and commit mm-hmm. to doing better whether it's for the environment or for people or for the food system or whoever ultimately we'll get to a place that's so much better than where we are right now. And that's what what we're trying to work towards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because it's part of why, because I'm, I'm always like, yeah, it's got to be profitable or nobody's going to do it. Um, So I come into conversations in the food system world and I'm like the, the enemy capitalist, you know, in the room. (laughs) Uh, yeah, right. In fact, I told people that there were times in the Wallace Fellows calls where I felt like this, you know, this Republican pig <laughs> compared to everybody else on the, Yeah, because, yeah, yeah, and to to me that doesn't, you know, I, I think I think the whole food system, the whole, if you want to call it a movement, would be really better served by not demonizing capitalism and demonizing business, mm-hmm. you know, because that is a part of the solution here. 
And yeah. and that's a big then, part of how you get your Secretary of Agriculture on board and helping when they they go, oh, 100%. this is about business, man. If we're going to create markets for farmers, that's going to make our Texas farmers better. I want to tell you, too, that I, I did some work in Mon- when I did the work in Montana. There's somebody there who is um, – is a brilliant person who's working within the context of a CDFI up there that is solely about food and agriculture, which I wish we had one of those in Wisconsin. Um, But they're the land of beef up there too, right? Just like you. And also big state, right? Just like you. Lots of people wandering around in very big hats um, in cowboy boots, right? And he is doing a plant-based protein project because they are starting mm-hmm. to transition. Their weed-growing areas are starting to grow pulses. And yeah. they, they grow the, – the majority of the domestically raised lentils, for example, are grown in Montana now. And, and so mm-hmm. he is trying to um, develop more acceptance of the idea of plant-based protein in Montana – and getting some traction, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, we have this common refrain. It's like, I feel like folks just want to see an alternative. Mm-hmm. Like, people can talk about this stuff hypothetically, and Lord knows we have for years. Those right. of us in the, quote, movement. You know, right. we've been dreaming up. There's, there's nothing that we're doing with Kitchen Sink that is remotely revolutionary. Right. You know, like, we're just, we're just trying to find... Yeah, we're trying to find the things that make sense to people mm-hmm. and, and tweak it, like radical but incremental change. Right, right. What is it that perfect is the enemy of the good or whatever that phrase yeah. is, right? Like like we, we keep trying to build the ivory tower that just alienates people and leaves people behind right. and all kinds of things. So it's not like the, the, the for-profit way of thinking about things doesn't leave people behind because it does, but... Anyway, yeah, yeah. Well, so we've talked about a lot of things. Have we missed anything that you can think oh, of? Oh man, of course we missed. We've missed so much, but that's mm-hmm. the point, you know. Right, that's the point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So oh, no, to that, go ahead. I wanted to say this though. You just had to drag my memory. The whole notion that we part of what we're doing is showing people what an alternative can look like. Mm-hmm. One of the sort of products on a financial way that we're helping convince philanthropies and public sector, for example, that a certain shift in their practices or investment is worthwhile or, you know, valuable, if we're going to use the profit term, is trying to create a little label or something that shows people what you get when you do this change, like a nutrition Mm -hmm. label would. You know, on the back of a cereal, Mm -hmm. you see the calories, you see the carbs and how much fat you have. And at the bottom, you see all your, your vitamins and minerals. What if we had to get folks to see the kinds of capital stacks or the kinds of partnerships that need to develop? We can show them, all right, you know, let's get, a, let's get some de-risking capital from a philanthropy here. Let's get the federal government to, you know, let a – or the, the local government to let a piece of land be used in a certain way, you know, forego property taxes, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Having a – digestible diagram, basically, that's kind of the economic health of a specific new approach to these issues. Mm -hmm. Um, That shows on the bottom where on on a food label you might see vitamins. We can measure social impacts that achieve the goals of the various stakeholders. Mm -hmm. Um, That's something, you know, this is an hour. We've been talking, what, for an hour and 15 minutes. Right. Um, and we're just, we're scratching the surface. We, mm-hmm. we need to find, we're trying to develop products that help people get get here quicker. Right. Um, and I agree. That, that's why you're, those maps, that mapping tool that you've developed is so powerful to me because that, mm. it's it's a visualization that's very efficient for your brain, right? You can look at that and go, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we we I agree with you completely that we need to find ways to communicate this all the value proposition of this to people in a much simpler way than we have been. Yeah, it's yeah. too complicated. I mean, I feel like in some ways too, we're we're 
therapist, you know, I think mm-hmm. it takes a lot of work and a lot of in, intent to think about the way you communicate and the way you function in the world and how you relate to other people and you relate to other things. And we're trying to get in there and, and bring out more transparency among different issues and figure out how different sectors connect and relate to each other. And mm-hmm. um, we're still working on figuring out what, what is it that will make that happen? What product can we create mm-hmm. so that we can offer it to a wider audience? Yeah. Um, but in, yeah. Yeah, and you only do that by experimenting and figuring it, you know, trying mm-hmm. stuff. That's it, man. It's welcome to being an entrepreneur. So you are now That's capitalist. It, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So it, it's going to be super exciting to to follow the development of your work. And, um, and also you. Austin. I mean, because I do think one of the – because people look to Austin the way they do, you're – impact your the impact of you pushing the needle in Austin um is pretty big because people will be watching Austin you know what I mean yeah I mean we hope so I think there's learn we we recognize the potential and the opportunity for the market quote-unquote for what we're doing yeah and a lot of that is because yeah we're just huge and there there is a lot of money here there's a lot and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of influence that could be leveraged because of that so yeah, I mean, right. we're, we're, we're just as excited, Tara. <laughs> cool, cool. Well, we are going to stay in touch so we can um, see what okay. happens with Kitchen Sink and also um, just with your work and with Austin. We, well, we'd love to stay in touch. and We appreciate you taking time to talk with us. Of course. Thanks so much, and we'll awesome. talk again sometime soon. Yeah. Thank we'll you. Y'all take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org. Thank you.